This is Macro Horizons, Lucky Episode 13. Operators are standing by. Presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill, Ben Jeffrey, and our imaginary friends to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of April 8th. And a reminder that the Institutional Investor Annual Survey kicks off on Monday. We'd truly appreciate your vote in the categories of U.S. rate strategy and technical analysis. While the process is akin to the combination of an NPR telethon and a Tammany Hall campaign, it's the most direct feedback we receive, and we value your support. Vote early, vote often. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. Well, it feels like I've said this several times. The past week was defined by yields reestablishing a new lower trading territory following TENS retracement from trading below effective Fed funds. NFP was good, but not great. And the question on everybody's minds is, are cuts really coming? Ian, what are you thinking? Well, to your point, Ben, we had a reasonable data week. The market consolidated somewhat. We saw 10-year yields back up to 250, which makes sense. The 2s, 10s curve is stubbornly in a range as everyone continues this ongoing debate of will we have incrementally more flattening or has the cyclical re-steepening finally begun? NFP was just fine, although we didn't see a significant bounce versus the disappointing February level, at least not on the headline side. In addition, manufacturing jobs actually declined for the first time since 2017, which is in and of itself a bit troubling. But more importantly, the average hourly earnings figures disappointed. We had a print of 0.1 versus last month's 0.4 and the consensus of 0.3. So this on net brought the year-over-year rate back down to 3.2. So for those in the market looking for an acceleration of inflation led by wage gains, this is a material challenge to that thesis. Obviously, given CPI in the upcoming week, we'll be interested to see how much the earlier wage gains actually translated through to realized inflation. Other developments, we had reasonable ISM readings, Brexit was bumped back again, the Fed is still not talking about rate cuts, and we had a solid round of Chinese data, although the German data was a bit weaker to start the week. My fundamental views haven't changed. Tenure yields at 250 will be a focal point in the coming months. Any material attempt to sell off will be a buying opportunity, even though we do have some supply coming in the near term. In the very front end of the curve, sustainably trading two-year yields sustainably through Fed funds at this point in the cycle makes sense. Anytime we see an attempt 
to bring two-year yields materially north of 250. I think that will be a buying opportunity as well. This is a very long way of saying that we are in a range at the moment looking for additional fundamental inputs, probably going to come in the form of a shift in Fed rhetoric, not this week per se, but something on the radar, and or the realization that the domestic data is deteriorating more quickly than the market feared. Another takeaway came from our pre-NFP survey, where the results showed that the market was still interested in dip buying, even though we're at a materially lower range in terms of outright yields. That's informative for a couple reasons, not least of which, as we approach the upcoming 10-year auction, we would expect a solid amount of demand, even if there is only a modest pre-auction concession. We're reminded that the 10-year treasury is the benchmark of all benchmarks in rate space. And we'll be watching to see if auction participants can make America refinance at lower rates again. So I had a fascinating question posed to me this week, and it was one of those moments in which I had a client paraphrase what I had just said back to me, and I said, huh, I sound like a crazy person. And I think that this will be an interesting discussion. So big picture, I made the observation that if the Fed decides to shift to price level targeting with effective Fed funds currently at 240, that given the correlation between equity volatility and tighter financial conditions, the Fed actually runs the risk of needing to cut rates in the event that inflation runs hotter this year than the market is expecting, 10-year yields back up to 325, 350, and the equity market responds as it did in the fourth quarter. The response then was, so Ian, you're saying if inflation comes back into the system, the Fed's going to have to ease? What do you think about that, John? So I think there are couple things that are wrong with with that framing. And, and maybe it's just more the framing than anything else. But in Q4 last year, we certainly saw it play out where spiking yields corresponded to tighter financial conditions. And this was a hawkish Fed, right? Higher expected path of policy, higher real rates, some consternation in the equity market eventually leading to that capitulation big sell-off we saw in December. But if the Fed implemented price level targeting, it's a different beast. What it's not doing is pushing up real rates. If anything, it's committing to keep real rates lower for longer, which would feed through into nominals. But what you could see happen as a result is more inflation compensation as a result of the Fed re-anchoring inflation around 2%, but lower real rates in the future. So therefore, it's not obvious to me, one, that you would see a spike in overall yields as the Fed's committing to keep rates lower for longer. But two, you certainly wouldn't expect to see a spike in real yields. And it's real yields versus neutral that are kind of the core driving factor for the economy. Well, that's all well and good from the Fed's perspective in terms of what should or shouldn't drive the real economy over time. But what we've seen twice already this cycle is Every time 10-year yields push up against 325, the equity market doesn't take that well. So, John, you're making the argument that equity investors are looking at real yields rather than responding to the sticker shock of 10-year yields north of 3%? So 
I don't have strong insight into equities, to be frank, but it does strike me that 10-year yields north of 3% in a world where you think neutral is in the high twos, low threes, isn't psychotic. But what you do see happen is when real yields spike sharply, that is what kind of the binding constraint is. And as the market's trying to figure out where's neutral, where's potential growth, even if it doesn't necessarily realize it's doing it, that's where things start to constrain. And you saw that in Q4 last year with five and 10-year reels pushing north of 1%, which has since unwound to now five and 10-year reels, somewhere around 50 basis points. In my mind, that is the actual easing being implemented into the market. And this is why price level targeting is a bit of a different beast, because it necessitates real yields being pushed lower. Fair point. Ben, I'll ask you the question. It is September. Fed's gone to price level targeting, a different beast that it might be. They're effectively saying they won't be responding to any near-term spike in inflation. Core PCE prints at 2.2. What do you think 10 and 30-year yields do? I think, obviously, the knee-jerk reaction is going to be higher, but what's going to be more consequential, kind of like John said, is the reaction from there. Are they going to be okay letting inflation run a little bit above their 2% target in order for it to be a little bit below further on down the road? I think it will really depend on how they establish that framework should we see something like that implemented over the next several quarters. Ben, I think you're exactly right, because what the Fed would be doing in a price level targeting regime like that is they'd be saying, we're going to keep rates lower for longer. It's weird then to say, oh, well, yield should be going up. Fair enough, rates lower for longer, introduce some more upside risk to inflation. But keep in mind where break-evens would be, say, 10 or 30 years in the future if there was no inflation risk premia and you just kind of assumed CPI would run its course. So CPI tends to be about 30 basis points or so, higher than PCE. If the Fed perfectly achieves and is expected to achieve its 2% PCE target, that means CPI should be 2.3. So 5, 10, 30-year break-evens should be 2.3%. It's not crazy then to see some pickup in yield driven by inflation expectations being re-anchored around 2% on a PCE basis, so 2.3 in CPI. The question, and I think Ben hit this on the head, do they lose control of inflation risk premium? Because if they do that, that's when you really start to see yields rise. But of course, they can cut into that by starting to raise rates and tighten policy again. So, John, what you're kind of saying is even though kind of what we see on the screen might be and what people reference all the time is the nominal rates on pick your favorite treasury security, but even though that line may remain relatively constant, the difference in the composition between what break-evens are doing and how the Fed is reacting with real yields is really what's important to consider should we see this in the near future. Absolutely. We saw this, a perfect textbook example of this in Q1 this year. The Fed went uber dovish. You had a drop in yields, but remember we went through a period where everything was just drifting sideways on a nominal basis. Inside that decomposition, though, real yields were collapsing to multi-year lows and break-evens were being pushed wider. That is a dovish Fed, lower reals, more accommodation, more inflation. And higher stocks. And higher stocks. Well, in this market, there only seems to be one direction for stocks to go, particularly when the Fed has signaled such a willingness to be dovish and stimulative for the real economy. 
That brings up another topic that we've been doing a little bit of work on. That's the actual decomposition of financial conditions. We've been talking a fair amount about the relevance of the FCI to monetary policy decisions. I think it's worth addressing some of the key components that go into determining when financial conditions have become tighter or easier. Yeah, so we took a look at one of the most popular FCIs. And one quick note is that it's impossible to actually measure financial conditions. Rather, people create indices as a proxy for it to try to get a measure. Okay, so if you're going to try to do that, what does it make sense to include? Well, probably short rates, so they include Fed funds. Long rates, they include 10-year treasury yields. Corporate bonds, so the actual financing condition for the corporate world, as well as stocks and the trade-weighted dollar. So to get a sense of how much these different factors matter, we ran some statistical analysis, just a regression of changes in the FCI and changes in those inputs to try to get a sense of over time, which of those factors has actually contributed to it, right? It's, it's one thing to say, these are the inputs. It's another question to be like, what has been moving the FCI? And more importantly, how should we think about that going forward as the key drivers of financial conditions? And what we found was the two primary drivers of the FCI were stocks and the dollar, being that when stocks go up, conditions ease. When stocks go down, conditions tighten. And as the dollar strengthens, that translates to a tightening impulse. And a weaker dollar is reflected in an easing of conditions. I would say that also makes sense with the research that shows that the FCI is correlated with the VIX, meaning that... When stocks go down, the VIX goes up and conditions tighten. All of this ignores the reality that the Fed, if they're trying to use financial conditions as a guide to conduct monetary policy, they're really subject to two components that are outside of their mandate, namely stocks and the dollar certainly doesn't suggest that the Fed is going to have a particularly easy go of it during this point in the business cycle. It does bring up the question, how does Stephen Moore feel about all this? So we've gotten some questions about Trump's most recent nominee for the Board of Governors uh, being Stephen Moore. And uh, we thought we'd address our understanding of how kind of he sees the world and what kind of governor he might be. First, it's not obvious that he actually will get confirmed. It's been a somewhat controversial pick. But to provide some context about the way he's thinking about things, from what we can tell based off of interviews or editorials he's written, he seems to have an opinion whereby the Fed should be heavily focused on commodity prices. And I think in his mind, what it means is that domestic inflation is heavily influenced by commodity prices themselves. So when commodity prices are going higher, you get more inflation. The Fed needs to adjust nominal rates to keep real rates relatively constant. And in the current state of the world, commodity prices are low. The Fed should be lowering rates to try to offset that deflationary impulse from commodities and keep real rates relatively steady. The awkward thing about that, though, is, and I certainly subscribe to this belief, real rates matter. And a lot of the way the Fed actually implements monetary policy is through adjusting real rates and not targeting commodities specifically. Well, I could also imagine a world in which the Fed needs to address an economic slowdown, perhaps comparable to what we might or might not see in 2019. They cut rates. They cut rates rather dramatically. The dollar 
depreciates, classic interest rate parity, we see commodity prices then increase, obviously in dollar terms. And under this theory, we would then expect the Fed to raise rates? It would be a very outside the mainstream way of thinking about things and something that hasn't been, I guess, representative of mainstream Fed thought for several decades. Well, it's not that surprising, given that this is the same person who has been advocating returning to the gold standard. And just at a certain point, okay, maybe there would be some intellectual diversity here, and that's probably being as generous as I can. But the reality is he would get a vote if confirmed, but that's just one vote. At the end of the day, the FOMC votes on decisions and certainly seems likely that there would be a dissent going forward in favor of an emergency 50 basis point cut. But that doesn't actually mean it adjusts Fed policy. It just means that there would be a dissent in the vote and then the rest of the committee would kind of proceed with a more complicated communication strategy. My thought has also been very comparable to what you're saying, John, is that the Fed will effectively silo anyone who makes it on the board who has such a unorthodox, (laughs) thank you, view of the world. It's kind of comparable to the idea of perhaps building a wall around him. Speaking of metaphorical walls that don't literally involve construction, we've also been attentive to the threat of shutting down at least some of the border between the U.S. and one of its three largest trade partners. It's really hard to get a precise read on the probability of this actually happening, or if it's simple political blustering. The fact that the peso has completely looked through this and has largely traded sideways for the past couple months is incredibly suggestive as to how seriously FX traders are considering this risk. And I think we're biased to view it in a similar light, it would be such a self-destructive move in terms of the domestic economy that it's hard not to see it as something being employed as a political tact in order to build support among part of the president's base. And moreover, from there, another layer of complication is, say, part of the border was closed. Well, Okay, it's not the entire border. Trade might not entirely stop, but it just serves to increase uncertainty and serves to run the risk that, oh, well, if they close half of it, maybe they'll close more of it in the future. And given the speed by which some of these things are happening, that can only be bad for business confidence, investment, and the domestic economy at a relatively precarious moment in the cycle. Oh, great. Our first caller. Hello? Yes, this is Macro Horizons. Yes, the II vote opens on Monday. Yes, it will be going until mid-May. Oh. Sure. We can take you off the distribution list until this infernal process is over. Yes, no, no don't worry, Margaret. I completely understand. Th- thanks for calling. Ian, are, are you okay? Uh, uh, I'll be fine. Does anyone have any Adele? Where were we again? I think we were talking about a precarious position in the economic cycle. Thank you for bringing us back down to earth, John. So speaking of where we are in the cycle, our recent NFP survey asked the question of 
what tools the Fed has at its disposal during the next recession. And the, the three areas we focused on were asset purchases, yield curve control, and the use of negative interest rates. And the distribution of answers that we saw were somewhat intuitive, but also a little bit surprising as to what action the people think the Fed's going to take. The most common response was another QE program, which is something we've talked about and I think makes a lot of sense as a way to keep yields lower. Something we were surprised by was how frequently negative interest rates were highlighted as a potential tool for the Fed to use in the event that the next recession really warrants such an extreme response. Yeah, that does seem like a relatively extreme response. And in general, it's something that I think a lot of market participants are waiting to hear from the Fed in order to better clarify their expectations. And within the responses, I think it was also telling that a lot of people asked the question, what tools do they have left outside of those three? And that kind of speaks to the fact that it really is an unknown as to what steps the Fed's going to take when the next recession eventually does come. And not to hammer this point home, but I think we ourselves, as well as a lot of other people who are involved in the market, are very closely listening to Fed speak as we're waiting to hear from Powell. Oh, what now? Hello, this is Macro Horizons. Oh, Mr. Powell, thanks thanks for the call. It's it's an honor to talk to you. We were actually just talking about monetary policy and what might be next for the Fed. Oh, n- no. No, we we don't we don't actually deliver pizza. But while I have you here, institutional investor voting opens up on Monday and we would re- Hello? Jerome? I think he hung up. In the week ahead, the treasury market will be focused on inflation. We get not only CPI figure, but we also do see PPI, the lesser cousin. In terms of the detail within the inflation reports that we'll be looking at, obviously core inflation is key. Whether there has been a translation between the earlier gains in average hourly earnings and demand side inflation will be very important to judge. Our expectations at this point in the cycle, however, are that any material acceleration of inflation won't lead the Fed to act, but rather just delay the inevitable cutting cycle. We have supply this week as well with the reopenings in tens and thirties. Takedown of long duration at this point, given the repricing to a lower rates plateau, will be very informative in terms of how far the market could rally even from here. So we'll obviously be watching the participation not only of the direct and indirect categories, but the outright performance versus any auction concession. What's notable is this will be the first long bond auction since the beginning of the Japanese fiscal year, and also the March FOMC meeting, in which the beloved dot plot was revised lower. Strong sponsorship for duration would imply a further flattening of the curve, particularly as we're moving into the stage that the market may soon be concerned that the Fed is stubbornly staying on hold rather than delivering a preemptive rate cut. We don't expect that to play out over the course of the next week or two, but rather the next month or two, which leaves us in an annoying trading range for twos and tens of roughly nine basis points to 20 basis points. 
a breakout in either direction will have technical momentum. It's also notable that DSIs have retraced from overbought conditions, which suggests that the period of consolidation that we've just seen is setting up the market for another more significant move, whether that ultimately ends up being yields above 250 or yields below 240 will be a function of both the data and the upcoming Fed commentary. On Wednesday, we'll get the FOMC minutes from the March meeting in which we'll learn how dovish was uber dovish. It will obviously be interesting to see how committed the Fed is to that 2020 rate hike that the dot plot revealed. However, moreover, what conditions would be necessary to get the Fed to move again? On the flip side, what are the risks around staying on hold and what conditions would be necessary for the Fed to actually ease? Suffice it to say, the minutes will provide incremental information to the market, although we don't expect that they will be truly tone-defining the way that the March meeting itself was. In terms of levels that we're watching, in 10-year space, we like the 233-234 range in terms of a selling opportunity. And then that yield peak at 254 that we saw could prove an important buy level, especially as the definition of the trading range continues. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we would like to offer our thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to listen this far. And a friendly reminder that there's no I in team, but there's one in Ian and two in II, so please get out the vote. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. 
you should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. Emo assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and Bemo accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. Bemo assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to Bemo and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. Bemo and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, Bemo's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.